When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Margaret Beckett and this is just as wonderful as you might have imagined. In fact, more so because this is like being transported into a different world. Margaret was first elected in 1974 in Lincoln, uh, almost 50 years ago, and has played a prominent part in Labour and British politics since then. Obviously, she's been the MP for Derby North for 40 years, and in that time has served under Wilson, Callaghan and Blair, served in th- for three Labour prime ministers, and so many different leaders, so many different phases of British politics, and just the, the the broad view she can take from from a from a senior position is is really unrivaled in the House of Commons, and we talk about what politics was like as a woman in 1974, how it compares to now, what sort of political changes and and changes within the Labour Party. Of course, Labour has still never elected a female leader, and we talk about that. But it's also just the personal recollect the personal recollections of, I mean, the John Smith conversation is very emotional, um. And I mean, that leads to other reflections about friendships and relationships and politics, but also just about Tony Benn and uh, other individuals that are, that are popular members of, of Labour history, but also polarising figures. And Margaret just brings them to life in a, in a more nuanced way. And um, there are re- there's a really interesting discussion about if John Smith hadn't have died and Labour win in 1997, what sort of government that would have been. But also dealing with the Americans and dealing with George W. Bush. I mean, this is just phenomenal stories from an amazing career, uh, which also includes some hilarious stories about going camping with Special Branch when she was Foreign Secretary. And just to let you know, um, some future guests at the show on the 3rd of July, which is the next show at the Duchess Theatre, my guest is Joe Lysett, the phenomenal comedian uh, and political activist. Two weeks later, on the 17th of July, my guest is Mari Black from the SNP. Now, you remember Mari's maiden speech in 2015 swept the world. It's one of the most impassioned uh, and compelling maiden speeches um, ever made on the floor of the House of Commons. She's now deputy leader of the SNP in Westminster. And obviously, fascinating things happening in Scottish politics, incredible things happening in the SNP. Uh, Mari doesn't give many interviews, so that is a, that is going to be a very rare evening uh, with with a precocious talent, but someone who's now in a position to really shape the future of the SNP. Uh, then I'm at the Edinburgh Festival all of August. I've put a, a link in the blurb. We can get tickets to my uh, new show, Inside Number 10. Play of words on Inside Number 9. Um, kind of works. And I'll, I'll be doing some political parties up there. And my guests will include Kate Forbes and Angela Rayner. Um, and then in September, when we're back at the Duchess Theatre, my first guest on the 18th of September is Dan Jarvis, who, oh my word, action man. Uh, Labour MP, Labour Mayor, future Prime Minister, who knows? 
Forest fan, um, but what an incredible life he's led. And on the 2nd of October, I'm very excited, uh, Jason Williamson, who's the lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, which I'm sure you will know is a phenomenal, unique um, band, but also deeply satirical and deeply political. Very funny people. And um, I'm delighted that he's coming on. Um, so a real mix of guests in the coming months. We can get tickets to all those shows by clicking the link that's in the blurb or just going to mattford.com. And of course, spitting him in the, the musical. He's on in the West End at the Phoenix Theatre until the end of August, which I've co-written uh, with Al Murray and Sean Foley, and I provide some of the voices for you. you can probably guess who. And thank you to all of you who've already been and have messaged me about it, because uh, obviously being involved in Spitting Image is a very special thing, um, given my interests and uh, you know the voices I do and everything. And bringing those puppets to life on the stage is something else, and it is... It's absolutely incredible sitting there watching it because it is just visually absolutely berserk. Um, so I've put the link to that as well, spittingimagethemusical.com, if you want to get tickets for that. So without further ado, please enjoy a very special evening with Margaret Beckett. But of course, uh, the, the whole thing now is being visited upon Rishi Sunak's doorstep. And as we speak, the House of Commons is debating uh, whether to vote through the report's findings. I mean, brilliant interview with Rishi Sunak earlier. He's outside a hospital. And uh, the report from Sky News says to him, uh, are you going to vote on the report? Are you going to vote in favour of the second? He goes, well, uh, it's, it's not a matter for the government. It is a matter for the House of Commons, so it's not for me to comment. She goes, you are a member of the House of Commons. <laughs> How do you not see that coming? Oh, shit, yeah. Well, uh, it, it's for PMs to decide, not MPs. You are an MP. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Watching the Tory, some of the elements of the Tory party still trying to defend Boris in Parliament this evening. It's been incredible. And Jacob Rees-Mogg keeps saying this thing. Well, had they found a, a Labour member of Parliament to chair the committee who had never previously commented on Boris Johnson, that would have given it considerably more credibility. No, it wouldn't. You would have found Britain's biggest idiot, a Labour MP who'd never had an opinion on Boris Johnson. And you think that would have given that committee credibility? Yeah, mate, we want you to chair that committee on Boris Johnson. Who? You're perfect. You'd have found a fucking idiot, my God. And of course, now he's in the Daily Mail, my God. In the Daily Mail, like, he's the big signing, and he's got this terrible video where he's going, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be writing the Daily Mail uh, every Friday, and I want to reassure you, it's completely unexpurgated stuff. Just say uncensored. It's fine, mate. You don't, your Latin's going to get you nowhere now, pal. Just stick to normal language that we can all... Completely, and the video of him, go on their Twitter feed and watch it if you can stomach it, because the video is pathetic, and they've got a bit of him where he's sat behind a big wooden desk with, like, a Union Jack behind it, and a little inflatable globe. <laughs> like he's pretending that he's still Prime Minister. You're like, this is absolutely tragic. He might as well, you know those old photo booths you'd have in shopping centres where you could either get your passport photo done or they'd make it look like you were in the Man United squad. <laughs> it's like that, but for pro he, he, you know what? He was so dead behind the eyes that he sort of knew he was lowering himself during this photo. You can sort of see, oh, for fuck's sake. To dressing me up like I'm still Prime Minister. Like some sort of circus bear. No, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm delighted to have signed for the circus. And uh, yes, I, no, I'm, I'm glad to be scraps out of a bowl and led around on a cheek. And, and I've got to tell you, what the ringmaster does to me is absolutely unexpurgated stuff. He <laughs> is, so, of course, uh, in the news again. And partly as a result, of course, of the video of the Tory staffers partying. They even called it Jingle and Mingle. Tragic. 
I mean, why? I don't know. Like, I don't know if anyone replied and was like, "I'm happy to jingle," but it's actually illegal to mingle at the moment. Is there a way to just jingle over Zoom? And that, I don't know what it is about the Tory Party that they can only speak in like "eat out to help out," "jingle and mingle." Like, why they need like shitty wordplay to get through life? Yeah, sorry about your uh, your dad um, choking on marmite and dying. Yeah, he's uh, yeast and deceased. I'm afraid he's. Uh... <laughs> It's a terrible, terrible tragedy, but um, should we go to the karaoke bar and just forget about all this? What, are you saying I want to uh, spread the virus by singing Miley Cyrus? Yeah, I am, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the Labour Party today in Scotland launched their big green energy plan, the fourth of Keir Starmer's five missions, and it was the full squad. We were treated to a speech from Rachel Reeves, then Ed Miliband, then Anas Sawa, and then Keir Starmer. And they all sort of brought a little thing, it was like a sort of highlights reel, sort of Glastonbury for... Um, sad bastards like me. It's that Ed Miliband, who, by the way, has not got over the fact that he's not leader. He plays these gigs like he's the leader of the Labour Party, and he gets up and he says, as Keir Starmer has already said, <laughs> the next Labour manifesto will be the sound of the future arriving. <laughs> says the guy from the past. You're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> fucking blowing my mind to the cheek of this guy to talk about the future. And then the whole thing, he's like, there's a bit where he, and it's really embarrassing, right? He puts in a, a, a rhythm where he's absolutely convinced he's going to get a round of applause. And he goes, renewables, nuclear, green hydrogen, carbon capture. It's the right choice for Britain. And he gets nothing. <laughs> I mean, I know the feeling, but, you know, it's, uh, I'm not trying to be the next Labour government. But there's a bit where he just gets nothing, but, he's, but he acts, and he goes, it's the right choice for Britain. I just thought, I mean, I thought it was a, it was a beat away from going, tough crowd. God, prefer the energy stuff, right? But then he, he gives way to Anasawa. He, he sets something up, Anasawa, and I was absolutely convinced this sentence was going to end somewhere else. He goes, we all remember Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon promising us that Scotland would be the Saudi Arabia of renewables. You think there's going to be a juicy punchline here. And then he goes, all they created was an industrial desert. Like, mate, you had a massive opportunity there. <laughs> a real opportunity. Nicola Sturgeon promised us that we would be Saudi Arabia of renewables. It's a good job she's not in Saudi Arabia facing justice, because she can't drive a motorhome with knee hands. <laughs> oh my God, right, okay, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, reflecting on that, it's terrible. There's really no. I don't think I've ever heard anyone go, oh God, to a punchline before. <laughs> Keir Starmer then comes on. And one thing that Keir Starmer likes to do is, he's got his big mission. What I like is when they set up a theme and they deliver it, and he's very good at that. He's got these five missions and each one in turn has been revealed. But he always makes them very, very heavy. And he starts off, he says, he says, actually, deeper questions are being asked here. Questions, I'll be frank, being asked of all of us. Now, mate, this is like a green policy launch, not a philosophy lecture. Where's this going? <laughs> Questions like, what am I doing here? <laughs> what is the nature of reality? Are any of us, in any sense, alive? <laughs> you know the phrase that was great for Keir Starmer? It was the Metropolitan Police. That really sounded like him. He, he, he doesn't say that anymore, but he said something today, actually, that is the next best thing. It's the most Keir Starmer selection of 
blocked nose vowel sounds and staccato T's and P's. <laughs> the fundamentals of global economic competition. <laughs> so, if he was trying to teach someone to impersonate him, that's exactly the phrase he would use. So look out for that in the future. But he uh, <laughs> keeps using this phrase about sticking plaster politics, which I get. But he said something today, he went, look around Britain. Sticking plasters everywhere. <laughs> it sounded like it was literal. I mean, I don't know why people aren't putting them in the bin. I don't know what part of the body some of them bit on, but disgusting. <laughs> and then, then he, he gets onto the Tories and he goes, remember what they said? Cut the green crap. That's what they said, cut the green crap. It sounded like it was grassing them up. Sir! <laughs> so they said crap. Yeah, and then he goes, it's not green crap. It's Tory crap. I think he, see, I think he, my theory on him is he swears in public once every six months and it, it sounds really good. It's not green crap, it's Tory crap. Like, there's something about it. I mean, I, I would like him to go a bit further. It's not green crap, it's a steaming pile of Tory shit. <laughs> Thank you and welcome back. And ladies and gentlemen, what an incredible guest we have this evening. A very, very rare talent and someone who has been an MP, first elected in 1974. So has been an MP for most of the last 50 years. She's an incredible talent. She's someone very, very treasured in the Labour movement, but beyond that, someone respected on every side of every chamber in this land. She has held some of the biggest jobs in British politics, Foreign Secretary, Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, and for a period of time, Leader of the Opposition. She doesn't need an introduction, but she's going to get one anyway. Please raise the roof for the phenomenal Margaret Beckett! <laughs> Welcome, Margaret. Well, I've got you a, a dry white wine. Thank you. Water. Good. Felt appropriate to have a glass of wine, given uh, the debate in Parliament this evening about Boris Johnson and parties and things. Yeah, it's flagons of wine that's not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, have you spoken to uh, any of your colleagues who are in the House of Commons tonight? Do they know when the vote's going to be or which way it's going to go? Well, I spent most of the afternoon in a select committee, uh, but the rumour is that maybe there'll be a vote about nine o'clock. Okay, so we will. Was, it's only a rumour. <laughs> and what, what was your, I mean, I, I can't imagine, obviously, you were ever a fan of Boris Johnson, but given, no. given the way that you've conducted yourself in politics and, and the sorts of values that you hold dear, how difficult was it to be a member of the House of Commons, not just during the Johnson period, but during the Trust and Corbyn era as well? Not easy. <laughs> I mean, people are always saying to you, you know, um, people don't have any trust in politics, and you kind of think, yeah, <laughs> I understand that. Um, I mean, I think it has to be said, Boris is the ultimate nightmare. I mean, even this trust was not as bad as Boris, although matter, as far as I can see. Um, <laughs> but um, everything he touches, he contaminates. And, I mean, it's, you first got elected in 1974. Mm. There's a brief period, you know, you get elected in Lincoln in 1974, yep. lose your seat in 1979, and then come back in 1983 in Derby. Retread. Absolutely. Uh, ever since. I mean, thinking of the prime ministers that you've seen in that time, the leaders of all our major parties that you've seen in that time, 
How unusual has the last few years been in British politics? Oh, extraordinary. I mean, people do say to me from time to time, have you ever seen anything like this before? And you keep saying, no, <laughs> never, never. I mean, I worked out once, I think, I don't know what it'll be now, I haven't had it up lately, but at the time, um, I was on my ninth leader of the Labour Party. I think it might have been Jeremy. Um, uh, because I seem to remember saying to somebody who... Take a step back. I'm a, I've been on the National Executive Committee a number of times over the years. Uh, and I'll be perfectly honest, when I was on the NEC, when Tony was the leader, we thought Tony was a bit of a control freak. <laughs> Trust me, he had nothing on Jeremy's team. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But I, I always felt not necessarily Jeremy himself, but certainly the people around him. But I think it was when Jeremy was the leader that I said to somebody, I've never agreed 100% with any leader of the Labour Party, and I don't, suppose to, I don't see why I should start now. Which, of course, was one of the things that meant you were cast into outer darkness. <laughs> because unless you kissed the floor when Jeremy walked by, um, you were attacking him, even if you never had attacked him. No, I mean, that was... We'll, we'll come on to that, because it's one of the most incredible periods in, 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 in Labour history. Probably the... He is, in terms of all the leaders the Labour Party has ever had, he is probably more out of the mainstream than any of them. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I was only saying to somebody the other day, actually, if you look at the people who came in in 83, some, there's, there's probably an article in this. Tony came in, Gordon came in, Jeremy came in, I came back uh, as a retread. Um, and I, somebody told me somebody else who would come in in 83 as well. We were quite a, quite a mixed bag, I think you could say. And to produce... I mean, all four of you led the party Indeed. in some way. Um, but just, just, just before we move off Boris then, I mean, is there a danger? You know, I'm always wary of when there's a consensus and group think. Mm. Is there any danger at all that actually the committee has got it wrong on Boris Johnson or that he was found guilty before any evidence was heard? Is there any truth, do you think, to any of his protests? I don't think so, no. But I want to turn it on its head. I always want to turn when I hear all this. Just imagine, and especially given that we all understand, I mean, the British people have always got a proper degree of cynicism about their politicians, always have had, and that's all right. Uh, Scepticism is fine. Utter cynicism, and they're all, that's what he wants, of course. What he wants most of all is for everybody to think that we're all just as bad as him, um, which is one of the things that I really object to about him. But... If you, ter- if you invert it all and imagine, given that people are not, author- you know, not, not enamoured of politics, they now see the House of Commons in a way they never did when I was first elected. They have seen Boris at the dispatch box, they've seen him ask questions, they've seen him answer them, they've seen him in the Privileges Committee. Imagine what their faith in politics would be if the Privileges Committee had found Boris innocent. If they had said, yeah, yeah, we agree. He, he, didn't mean, he didn't mean to lie at all. He didn't mean anyway. I should imagine you'd hear the kind of Bronx cheer from John O'Groats. I mean, uh, uh, my feeling is that people would be utterly disillusioned if the Privileges Committee hadn't said yes. And when you see the way that he's behaving towards Rishi Sunak, oh. does it give you any sympathy for Rishi Sunak at all? Mm. <laughs> I'm not totally unsympathetic, 
But what I keep remembering, and what nobody seems to mention much anymore, is that um, when Boris let Dominic Cummings kick out Sajid Javid, who was, of course, the Chancellor, Sajid said, no minister with any self-respect would allow, would accept what he was being asked to do, which was to let them pick his staff. And Rishi Sunak promptly took the job. And so when I think about Rishi Sunak, that's what I think. Five minutes before, he was a, a junior minister of no particular track record, and then suddenly he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and almost as suddenly, he's the Prime Minister. So, um, I, I, I understand he finds himself in a difficult position, but he did volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> and what about his predecessor then, Liz Truss? Because oh. she, she said today that... <laughs> she said that, um, you know, that she's, um, the attacks on her were pure rile and the whole lettuce business was, was unfair and it was juvenile. <laughs> Do you have any sympathy for her with the whole, all the gags about her lasting less than a lettuce? Uh, well, to be fair to her, I do slightly sympathise about the lettuce. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, who, whoever would have um, imagined that you could be compared unfavourably with a lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I have to say that the damage that she did to, uh, to the whole British people, uh, I think is very hard to forgive. Uh, but one thing that did strike me forcibly, and, and it's probably something we shouldn't let go of, she and Kwasi Kwarteng exposed everything I've ever thought about the Tory party. You know, given the position that we were in, they wanted to borrow money after all those lectures they give us all the time about economic responsibility, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. They wanted to borrow money to give it away to people who already had more than they need. That's the Tory party, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, do, do you think there was any... Because uh, some of the supporters at the time perhaps suggested that um, some of the attacks on her were misogynist or anything like that. I mean, as a woman in politics, did you have any sympathy with her? Did you think some of it was, was sexist? Quite possibly, yeah. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> I mean... She did go out of her way. I mean, things like wearing that fur hat in Red Square in the middle of the summer or whenever it was. And um, she did seem to go out of her way to dress up like Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Um, and not having been Margaret Thatcher's greatest fan, um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't myself think that was uh, very... So, you know, yeah, of course. Of, of course she had a harder, harder time because she was a woman, but... I'm afraid it's a bit hard to judge that she didn't earn some of it. And comparing British politics in 2023 to what it was like in 1974, is it easier to be a woman in politics now or harder? Well, in one sense, it's a lot easier. Because um, when I first... Somebody said the other day, and I haven't counted the numbers, they're probably right, when I was first elected, there were only 27 women MPs, full stop. And certainly I used to say to people, if there was a photocall for all women MPs, you only had to look around, you knew whether we were all there or not. Um, so in that sense, it's easier. And the atmosphere has changed. I remember when Virginia Bottomley won her by-election. Um, that was the moment that I knew that there'd been a major culture change in the Labour Party because I was sitting on the back benches, minding my own business. And uh, when, you, when you take your seat after a by-election, 
may have seen it now on the telly, you're sponsored by two people. And so she was sponsored by her whip or somebody, I can't remember, and her husband, who was already a member of parliament. And they, you know, they come forward to take, and as, as they bowed to the chair and came forward so she could take the oath, somebody, some man on our benches called out, who's looking after the children? Now, that was not remarkable. What was really remarkable, and why I knew that a culture change was happening in the Parliamentary Labour Party, was that every man in my vicinity turned round like that and said, it wasn't me, that wasn't me, that wasn't me. <laughs> Ten years before, they wouldn't have known what, that there was a problem. And that's because, obviously, you led the Labour Party in opposition unelected. Mm -hmm. First woman to do so. But Labour has never elected a female leader. It's my view of it, having briefly worked for the party in the East Midlands, was that actually elements of the Labour Party are institutionally sexist. That there still, even at the time that I was there in, in the mid-noughties, was that actually trade unions and, and those sorts of places can often be quite macho. It's often, well, it's my turn next, and of course a lot of the men had been there longer. Um, I don't know whether that's still the case, I don't know what view of the Labour Party is now, but why has the Labour Party never elected a woman to lead it? It's luck. It's timing. It's, you know... I mean, why was Barbara Castle? Barbara Castle should have been the first woman Prime Minister, not Margaret Thatcher. She was eminently qualified, but it, the timing just didn't work out. Um, and, and it's just... One of the things that people rarely say, and I, don't, I never know whether it's encouraging to people or discouraging to them, but there is an enormous amount of luck about politics, far more than... Because, of course, those of us who are successful don't necessarily point out how much of it's luck, um, because we hope that people will think it's all down to our own talents. But there is an enormous amount of luck in it, and that's why we haven't had a woman leader. And in any case, if you, I mean, look at the women leaders they've had. I mean, it was Glenda Jackson, I think, who said that she didn't regard Margaret Thatcher as a woman. Um, <laughs> and, and you notice she took the precaution of never having another woman in her cabinet, apart from the first six months. But when you look at, you know, on whatever you could say about the merits of the individual candidates, and you could say that about a lot of the male leaders of our political parties as well, that they're not qualified, when the Tories have delivered two female Prime Ministers, mm, I know. the first ever non-white Prime Minister, do you think actually, does that in a way qu make you question something deeper and go, Labour considers itself to be the party of equality, but actually in, in its own sort of mad way, the Tories are far better at delivering it in those regards. And then, in a way, doesn't that vindicate their view of the world in some way? Aren't, if, if, you, if you want to sort of get on and, and do something, in a way, aren't the Tories better for you if you're from a different background? If you're from a, a background where you have acquired wealth and power, yeah. Um, but otherwise, no. Um, I mean... No, I've forgotten what I was going to say, something about, um, uh, about the, the way that Thatcher um, got the job. But, uh, no, it, it, is, it is a genuinely difficult issue. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah, and it's sort of, it doesn't exactly confirm your view, but it tells you how far we've come. I was first elected to the Shadow Cabinet, 88, 89, something like that. Um, before that, there was, there was a period which was regarded as a period of great progress, when we had one woman in the elected shadow cabinet, only one at any uh, given time, but we did have one, always. Um, and that was when people like Joe Richardson started to work on 
how there ought to be more representation, which Neil was totally in favour of, and 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 you know gave her a position and and worked with her very much, um, and it was decided that something had to be done about getting more women into the shadow cabinet, and I can't remember now the the exact mechanism that we had. I think it was something like. Um, three out of three out of your votes had to be for women or something like that. But very important caveat: in order to create room for that, we had to add three or four more places onto the shadow cabinet, so that no man <laughs> who was on the shadow cabinet would risk losing his place in order for there to be allowed to be more women. And it wasn't assured that another three women would get on the shadow cabinet, but there was a much better chance uh, of them getting on. And I vividly remember. Um, to be fair, he was even then regarded as a very, very die-hard reactionary. One of our parliamentary colleagues saying in the tea room, in sort of general conversation, there is no woman in the parliamentary party who is fit to be in the shadow cabinet. And, and a nicer one of our colleagues <laughs> said to him, Jerry, you, you could at least say present company expected. No, <laughs> he said. And I won't bore you with the names of the people who were in the shadow cabinet then, but they weren't all the most dazzling stars in the political firmament. <laughs> this was during periods, Labour's 18-year opposition phase, so surely yeah. um, a, a bit of uh, new blood would have helped. Uh, what was it like in 1970? So you, you get elected in Lincoln as Margaret Jackson, yep. before you're Margaret Beckett, and I've got one of those leaflets, because I used to be an organiser out of the Lincoln Labour Club, and they've still got your, or they certainly did a few years ago, still had your old leaflets undelivered. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, upstairs, up behind this photo, I found like... That's a, the pre-Peter Mandelson Debt Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found it and I thought, I'm having one of those, because like, whenever I work on by-elections or anything, I would always keep stuff, but I've got one of your original leaflets from 1974. Um, Britain was obviously a very different place at that time. Mm. Labour was in a very different place. But... Again, just, just thinking about being a, a female politician at that time, what were your parliamentary colleagues like in 1974? Was, it, it, was Britain in the 70s the sort of place I would imagine it to be, sort of unreconstructed, open sexism? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but, I mean, the good side of that was that there was tremendous uh, camaraderie among the women, um, well, particularly the Labour women, uh, a real, you know real friendship, real feeling of solidarity, and, and we, uh, I think we all tried to help each other. Um, so that was a good side of it, but yes, there was a, there was a huge amount of sexism. Um, and I remember one of, our, one of our nicer colleagues who was very much on the left and who would have been outraged um, to have been described as anything else, um, um, complaining bitterly because by an accident, and somewhere in the tea room or something like that, he found himself the only male in a, in a group of women. And was kind of, oh, you know, I, I really feel quite un uncomfortable here. And we were all like, excuse me, <laughs> how do you think we usually feel? And he was, he was quite, and, and, you know, a, a very feisty individual uh, on the stump. But uh, no, no, he was quite, um, quite taken aback. So when you, you know, you're in Parliament, you, you lose your seat in 1979, which is the, the one mm -hmm. where uh, you know, the, the Tories win in 1979. Margaret Thatcher goes from leaving the opposition to becoming Prime Minister. When she was leaving the opposition, or even when she was Prime Minister, I mean, there's so few women in Parliament. Did you have any sort of 
relationship with her. Not really. No. Not like that. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of immature snigger that I sort of suggested something. But did you have any, were there any sort of informal? Not really. No, she wasn't an informal person at all. And as far as I could see, she had no sense of humour. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, I, I remember quite distinctly. I don't know whether people react two things, perhaps, that one should say about that time. First of all, she was a bloody awful leader of the opposition. She was terrible. She was so bad that as another woman MP, it was embarrassing. It was really, really embarrassing. She squeaked for a start. And not only did she squeak, she squeaked rubbish. That was worse. Um, but, and they despised her. The Tory um, kind of upper crust called her the cultured pearl, which I thought was really a real snidey little sneer. Um, and they, they treated her with contempt. Uh, and I, I remember, you know, one would express, well, I would express anxiety about some of the things that she might say or some of the things that some of her, her sidekicks would say about policy. And they go, oh, you don't want to pay any attention to that, you know. I mean, Willie will take care, it'll be all right. Uh, no, no. And I, I, every now and then I would say to them, you know, you're nuts. I mean, for a start, you don't appreciate how different it is that she's a, she's a woman. Um, and part of the thing that Leo, uh, my husband, w would always say that um, if you say to a man, you can't do that, and he says, why not? And you say, because those are the rules. He'll probably go, all right. If you say it to a woman, she'll say, then the rules are stupid. Why are those the rules? <laughs> um, and I used to say to them, you know, you treat her with disdain and contempt. Your prime minister is always somebody who has enormous power. You give them enormous power. You let them have control of your lives. If she gets to be prime minister, she won't owe any of you anything because, frankly, you're treating her like shit. And they sort of go, oh, no, 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 um, you know, will you rule <laughs> that, that lasted about two seconds um, after she became prime minister. She did what I always feared she would do. She rode roughshod over everything. And, uh, and she was allowed to ride roughshod over everything because the Labour Party did not get enough votes in, in 79, in, in 83, in 87. Being part of the Labour Party during that period, seeing Thatcher just transform the country in so many ways, mm. on reflection now, do you think that had Labour been more sensible, been closer to the centre, it could have stopped her? Or was Thatcher a juggernaut that was always going to win three elections in a row? Uh, I don't think she was always going to win three elections in a row. Um, Certainly she was going to win in 79 because, you know, things were very difficult, genuinely very difficult. Um, and I, I remember Jim Cowan said, you know, the, the, there comes a moment when you can see the tide's turned and there's going to be a change. So I think that was inevitable. What won it for her uh, after that was the Falklands, um, where uh, she risked the security of this country um, and sent a lot of people to their deaths entirely unnecessarily um, and didn't get an ounce of blame for it. Um, and 
uh, and then she got all the credit and had, you know, a triumphal parade. And I don't know how many people would remember these days, but they, they, people who'd been injured in, and disfigured in the war were told to stay away from the victory parade that she had in the, in the city of London. Um, it was it was appalling. Um, and then, of course, the thing, the thing that nobody ever talks about, and it gets, it really gets up my nose. They had the money from North Sea Oil. They wouldn't have had it, by the way, if it hadn't been for Tony Benn. Nobody ever talks about this either. Ted Heath did a deal with the oil companies whereby they paid Tom's Hapney for the licenses uh, for oil exploration. Unfortunately, we won, and Tony was in, in that ministry, and he did a proper deal. Um, with Harold's backing with the oil companies, whereby the public got revenues from the licenses in the North Sea. And that's where all the money came from. And one of my, uh, I, I apologise by the way, it's probably very boring, but. No, it's fascinating. Um, I was um, the Minister for Schools, and a, a report came in not long before the election that there was dereliction and decay in England's schools. And it was about 100 million pounds that it would take to put it right. Now, at that time, our capital budget for a year was 10 million pounds. So I was kind of, oh, God, this is going to be take forever. And then I remember thinking, ah, but North Sea Oil's going to come on stream. There's going to be money. It'll be all right. Well, there was money. Thatcher used it. Lawson used it to get themselves re-elected. And when we came back to power, the bill for dereliction and decay in schools was three billion. Uh, and not long before he died, Alan Clark, who was uh, a diarist of some note, uh, apart from, although he had, he had, did have other problems, um, <laughs> but I ran into Alan Clark in the members' cloakroom, and I'd have no idea why we had this conversation, but he said to me, my next book, I'm going to write about how the, the, the Tory party, sorry, the Tory party betrayed Britain by the way we used North Sea oil. And I thought, whoopee, I'm looking forward to that. And of course he died. <laughs> and if there was a manuscript, it never saw the light of day. But I thought, well, at least somebody does recognise. And I mean, I'm sorry for people who were fond of Nigel Lawson. I'm sorry for his family. It's always sad when somebody dies. But the fact that he never for one second ever even mentioned all the money they had. There was a point at which I did some checks because I used to use this in my speeches and the, nobody else ever did. And there was a point at which they were getting, they got something like 17 years worth of money from the North Sea to the tune of 35 million pounds every day of the week for a solid 17 years. That was the scale of the money they got from the North Sea. They never acknowledge it, they never mention it, and nobody ever talks about how they frittered it all away, and why, why we don't have a sovereign wealth fund like Norway does. And the SNP, by the way, complained bitterly about how Margaret Thatcher misused money. Who gave, the SN, who, who gave Margaret Thatcher the opportunity? The SNP, they voted to bring down the Labour government because they thought they were going to get a bigger parliamentary party and they ended up with about four of them and it served them right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to um, go through there, but... Um, 
just thinking about the first... You're getting the benefit of my rants. Well, no, this is great. The, the first Labour, you mentioned serving under um, Callaghan there. It was Wilson that first mm. gave you a gig as a whip. Harrod appointed me. So thinking of all the Labour leaders that you served, because you basically serve all of them until Gordon. Yep. Come on to that. <laughs> Who was the most impressive? I think, I mean, I never knew Atlee, obviously. I think in many ways, the most impressive was the one we never had, John Smith. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um, You obviously led to the party in the wake of his death. Mm. I mean, it must be an incredible thing to... I mean, people deal with grief, obviously, all the time, but to then have to immediately, you know, you're mourning the loss of a colleague and a friend, and then you've got to hold the government to account, stand in a leadership and a deputy leadership contest at the same time. I don't know if in a way that helps because you're occupied and you've got stuff going on, or in a way... <laughs> I was it's occupied, de- right. <laughs> Whether it defers the grief, I don't know. It must have been a surreal experience for you. It, it was. Uh, I mean, when Larry Whitty rang up and told me... Um, that John was in hospital and had had another heart attack. Uh, I immediately went into how do we protect him mode. And I was starting to say to Leo, you know, well, we must make sure that he doesn't feel under any pressure, that he's got to stand aside immediately or anything silly like that, you know, give him time. And And Leo said to me, Margaret, I could hear Larry on the phone and I could hear the tone of his voice. I think he's dead already. And he was, of course. But they weren't saying anything because Sarah was in, uh, in the States, I think, and they didn't want it to come out until Sarah could be told. But that's... I had to um, keep rehearsing what I said at the dispatch box because I couldn't get through it without bursting into tears. It was very difficult. I was so pleased I managed it. Um, you know, when I actually had to do it, but God, it was bloody hard. Because people talk about politics like, they say, oh, you know, the, there are no real friends in politics, but I don't think that was true. And I certainly don't think it was true of John Smith. Obviously uh, John had friends everywhere. <laughs> At his funeral, Donald, Donald Dewar said, John could start a party in an empty room and frequently did. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are sort of legendary stories, particularly of the Scottish Labour contingent getting the sleeper train oh. back up and just basically just drinking through the night and tipping out at <laughs> Edinburgh or Glasgow Central. When he was the leader, he was under, Hilary Armstrong was his PPS and primed by, you know, 
the family and so on, Hilary did her best to keep him uh, in order. <laughs> and she would put him in the car and send him home. And then he would leak out and come back to the barn, have, an <laughs> have another few scotches with the lads. I mean, obviously people always ask, what sort of Prime Minister would he have been? What sort of government would he have led? What, j just thinking of that as a, a sliding doors moment, how would his government have been different to Tony Blair's? Lots of ways. Uh, I mean, for one thing, one of the things John doesn't get any credit for is it was John as Shadow Chancellor who first, uh, we had a, a, a working party thing, which I was on as well, which because it was before I was um, in his team. Um, and uh, he's the person who came up with the idea then, until then, the prevailing wisdom was always, under Labour governments and Tory governments, you either had social justice or you had economic competence. But one had to be played off against the other. And it was John, after a lot of study and a lot of evidence and so on, who said, no, they're two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. You have both, or you probably don't have either. Um, so that's... So that was a turning point and very much part of John's um, approach. And Tony was never, I felt, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, Tony was very kind to me in the end. <laughs> but, but, um, but Tony was never all that comfortable uh, with the, the relationship with the trades unions, not really comfortable with it. John was really proud of being a, a, a sponsored member of the GMB. He'd tell anybody at the drop of a hat. And, you know, people were always thinking that, um, you know, somebody's going to want to try and break the link with the trade unions. And I remember somebody saying to me, you know, old John Smith tried to break the link. You've got to be joking. You know, John boasts about being a sponsored member of the GMB. So he had a very close link with the trade unions. Um, and I think... I think it was a weakness of ours that we didn't have, as a, of that government, that we didn't have a better relationship, a stronger relationship with the trade unions, which they were up for. Um, but it, Tony wasn't, didn't find that easy. Didn't find that easy, that's all I would say. Um, anything else? I don't know. Um, Iraq? Probably lots of things. Would, would John Smith have taken us into Iraq? I genuinely don't know. I mean, everybody assumes no. I'm now going to say something that will not be popular with anybody. <laughs> um, everybody believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, not least because he'd already used them for once. Um, and, uh, and what everybody forgets is the Security Council, which included Syria, voted unanimously for action against Saddam Hussein because... Everybody believed he'd got weapons of mass destruction. I've sometimes wondered that perhaps Saddam believed he had. <laughs> because, you know, famously, if, if you told Saddam good news, it didn't end well for you. Um, bad news, sorry. So uh, I, I just don't know. Um, because certainly John would have taken the evidence into account, as Tony did. You know, people lied about the evidence. And obviously, in the end, it turned out that, that they had lied, that there weren't the stocks there that we all thought. But, I mean, people like David Kelly held the view and indeed expressed the view in an article in The Observer that nobody remembers and nobody ever talks about. 
if Saddam Hussein retained power, he would always be searching for weapons of mass destruction because that was the kind of guy he was and that's what he wanted, that was the kind of power he wanted. So I, don't, I can't just say, no, John would not have done that. Um, it, it, he, I can't even say for sure that he wouldn't have been on decent terms with George W because George W was a very affable person. Um, and John was an affable person, but but certainly, um, you know, it's, that's one of the things that, that we'll never know. So, when you dealt with obviously Condoleezza Rice and members yep. of that uh, administration, um, I mean George W. Bush, as you say, very affable, charismatic, very funny guy. Did you talk to him directly much? Not very much. Um, this is going to sound like the most terrible name dropping. The only time I ever met him was when I was with the Queen on a state visit <laughs> <laughs> to, to the United States. Um, and uh, obviously there are events in the White House and that was the only time I ever met George W. Um, who was extraordinarily friendly. But I did get on very well with um, Condoleezza Rice. Um, and so obviously that made a difference. And in fact, I distinctly remember being a bit embarrassed because he wasn't a great man for protocol. Um, and uh, we were in, in the White House, we were having drinks before dinner, uh, and there was a whole crowd of us in this room, and I have a distinct feeling that George W was supposed to be looking after the Queen and Prince Philip. He was talking to me and Leah <laughs> in the corner, Condoleezza Rice. Uh, um, and as I say, tutting away, and I remember when we left, I, I went, mm, as you do, because... Um, you don't, you know, the Queen and the Duke go out, and so if you're in this terrain, you um, you kind of sneak out round the back and then get in the, in the car further down the motorcade. So we're sneaking out, but just coming across, and George is on the steps, having said good, saying good night to the, free, to the Queen, and he goes, "Oh, nice to see you, Margaret." That's <laughs> <laughs> top of his voice, waving. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're supposed to be sneaking round the back, you know. Um, inconspicuously uh, so um, but uh, that's the only time I ever actually met him um, but I'm now going to add to the outrage that I caused earlier George, Tony said that um, in his view in domestic politics George W was a guardian liberal <laughs> In domestic U.S. politics. Okay, wow. but I mean, he, 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 he was a supporter of the death penalty. I don't. I mean, there'll be the odd. There'll be the odd thing. <laughs> wow. But you know, you think about it. He he, um, he did have some reasonably. Uh, I mean, domestic politics. He had some reasonably progressive um, points of view. And do, I mean, obviously. You, you're a powerful person yourself. You're the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. That brings with it considerable weight on the global stage. But you're then dealing with the President of America, the Queen. Were there elements of power and being around other powerful people that felt surreal? I think not too much, because you haven't got time to feel surreal. You're in there. I mean... Tony appointed me on a Friday, and this was not what I was expecting, as you may have heard. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I didn't know what to expect, but I was definitely not expecting to go to the Foreign Office. On Monday, I was in Washington um, meeting, because um, we were doing the Iran negotiations, the E3 plus 3. So the French, the Germans, Condé, um, Sergei Lavrov, uh, and the Chinese Foreign Minister. And we're meeting uh, for half an hour. So my, my team say to me, first of all, you're going to meet Condé just to say hello. Then you come and meet the French and the German um, foreign ministers to say hello. Then you're all, six of you, are going to just meet over drinks, half an hour probably, and then you're going into dinner, and then uh, you'll have one of your advisors and the ambassador with you. So you'll be fine, and you've read the brief. You'll be fine. So there's no time to kind of think this is surreal. You just in there. Uh, so all of that happened. And then the six of us met and um, we were uh, talking about the Iran deal. And the first thing that happened is that Condi said, um, this is all very well, you know, what's been suggested is not too bad, but it's not great. Um, and I've got some suggestions about how we can improve it a lot. And she had. Um, because obviously she got the go-ahead from George W. Um, probably over Donald Rumsfeld's dead body. Um, <laughs> and uh, so she had stuff to, you know, make a much more substantial office offer to the Iranians. That if you don't go down the, power, the, the path of nuclear weapons, this, these are the things that we can offer you. So needless to say, we all talked about this. So probably it was, ooh, an hour, maybe a couple of hours before we emerged, all our civil servants are outside, white-faced. <laughs> There's nothing civil servants hate more than ministers without any control discussing things in a room. And of course, my poor sods were more white-faced than anybody. Um, and uh, anyway, and then we went into dinner. Um, and it all kind of went on from there. So you had a good relationship with Condi Rice. Got on okay with George W. Bush. What was your impression of Rumsfeld and Cheney? I never had anything to do with Rumsfeld. Uh, and Cheney, I met only once, again, name dropping. I was sitting next to him at the White House dinner for the Queen. I don't think he spoke to me all night. And I thought, oh, you've obviously been briefed about me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because all the pressure was on your... To, in this country, you know, <laughs> members of the Labour Party said, oh, my God, we've got Labour ministers sitting next to these far-right Republicans or however they were sort of portrayed. But for them, they must have seen you basically as communists. I mean, did you ever... Oh, I think so, did, yes. Did, did you ever get the impression... I'd be, I'd be very upset if Dick Cheney didn't think I was a communist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And as a, as a former, indeed, current communist... How do you feel then when you're at the top of government and you're dealing with the Queen? I mean, it, it, you know, you're a patriotic person, that's the system we have as well, but is it hard for a Labour politician with your background to interact with the monarchy? And well, don't forget, by the on? time I was Foreign Secretary, I'd been Leader of the House for three years. And when you're Leader of the House, you're the President of the Privy Council, and you meet the Queen most years, roughly once a month. Uh, not for long, you know, um, half an hour standing. Uh, but uh, but you do meet her, and, and you know, and also um, before that, uh, when 
when I was deputy leader of the opposition, um, and John died, and obviously I'd stand in. Well, first of all, I met her as deputy leader of the opposition um, because we, we were invited to dinner at Windsor. Um, and then um, when it was, I think it must have been the 50th anniversary of D-Day, and the commemorations happened after John had died. So I acted as I was, the leader of the opposition. Um, and so I saw a bit of her then at various things. Um, so one way and another, I did encounter her uh, over the years, which was good preparation for when I was Foreign Secretary. Did you ever get the impression that the monarchy or, or the group, they were sort of wary of the Labour Party? No, because that wasn't the, either the length or the quality of my uh, encounters with them. But if you're asking me, and actually I, I did get the impression that perhaps your relationship with the Queen might be easier than some of the other members of the family. Uh, and there was a point in my career, entirely by the by, when um, there's, a, there's a council, at, at, I suppose it still exists, at, um, at Windsor, that runs a kind of, um, or did run a sort of series of seminars and things. And as luck would have it, I was invited to one of these things when I was quite newish. You know, I probably was at education by then uh, and minister for schools. But anyway, I, was in, I went on one of these things. And then not long afterwards, the, the Labour Party always had a... Each of the political parties had a representative on this group, uh, which was only about 12 strong and was chaired by the Duke of Edinburgh. And um, Harold came off it because he uh, ceased to be Prime Minister, I think. And they put me on it. And then when I came off it, they put Jim on it, who was by then Prime Minister. So it was a bit of an odd interregnum. But um, through that, I had a bit more to do with the Duke of Edinburgh. And I seem to remember taking him to task about his uh, attitude to the unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the, the words that were used? Um, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I, I think I said something like, because my father's health was never good. Um, well, not after I was three, because he came back from the war with, with destroyed health, like lots of people. Um, and the Duke had said something, and so he was always unemployed not through any wish of his. Uh, and the Duke must have said something about the unemployed, and I said, yes, well, I thought we'd got over. We'd all got over thinking that kind of thing. And I, I, I've said a bit more. I don't remember anymore, because it was a very, very long time ago. I don't remember what I said, but I do remember thinking that this is probably not how, not how you're supposed to speak to the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing a story about you, and I think it's in Andrew Rawnsley's first book, Servant to the People. I'm not sure if you read any of those. No. Inside accounts. And not only do I not read these books, I don't look in the, in the index to see where I'm mentioned <laughs> either. I did it on, on your behalf of the early noughties, and I still have it committed to memory, that when various members of the incoming Labour government in 1997 were shown their grace and favour places, some weren't that happy, you and Leo apparently were overwhelmed at the size of the flat you got and were the, by far the most grateful <laughs> couple. Is that true? And what sort of place did you get? 
first of all, uh, yes, it's true. Um, second, one of the reasons we were so grateful was because by then, uh, I'd already been at the DTI for a while, and, the, and at the DTI then, the, the portfolio was enormous, and you get sort of four boxes a weekend and all that kind of thing. The place was, and, and our, our own flat uh, is very conveniently close to Westminster. And in fact, I was convinced we couldn't afford to live there, but uh, Leo insisted that we had to move because it was getting to be a killing pace otherwise. Because um, I was nursing a marginal seat and travelling up and down for, for, to be in the economic team. And um, so I was already struggling with the red boxes because... It, it's more like a bed sitter, really. It's a bit like an ensuite hotel room with its own front door <laughs> in, a, in a block that's, that's full of, of places like that. Yeah. So it's tiny. I mean, I suppose you could invite one person in for a cup of coffee, but that would be your maximum, <laughs> and that would be quite inconvenient. And there we are with red boxes and things all over the bloody place. So to be offered somewhere bigger was very helpful. Uh, and it is enormous. I mean... Our bedroom was probably bigger than our flat that we own. Um, and we had uh, a big sitting room, which had been the... I ought to take a step back. This is a place that was built as a house, as a residence for the First Lord of the Admiralty, about 250 years before, at taxpayers' expense, about 250 years before... Um, we were there. In the 60s, Harold Macmillan stayed there because they were doing number 10 up. And he said it, was, it shouldn't be a, a house for one minister anymore. It had always been the house for the First Lord of the... <coughs> yes, the First Lord of the... Not the First Lord of the... That's the Prime Minister. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, probably it was the First Lord of the Admiralty because it's... Ne it's on the Horse Guards Parade, it's next to the old Admiralty building where the Admiralty Board used mm. to meet. So it was a, it was a house for, the, for that senior minister. And then Harold Macmillan had it and said, you know, you don't need a whole... Winston Churchill had it as a whole house. Mm. You don't need a whole house. And he had it split into flats, and there were four. And the ground floor was kept as, as rooms for the, any department could have for, for use for drinks or um, events, dinners, whatever, then the first floor was the same size as the ground floor and had rather a nice staircase sweeping up to it. And then the top floor was, the second floor was, and the top floor were broken down into individual, so they'd obviously been the bedrooms and so on. So we had two huge staterooms. We had four, five windows that looked out over Horse Guards Parade. And when it was Trooping of the Colours, we used to invite about 250 people um, who fitted easily um, into uh, that one room. And then we had another room, it's just as big behind it, which was the dining room. And we had a big study and, uh, and eventually a bathroom. When, when we first got it, there was, um, there was just a, 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 a grotty, filthy little bathroom off a side staircase. Um, and, and when I was offered it, the, the cabinet secretary said to me, um, oh, it's a, a one-bedroom flat uh, without, I fear, an ensuite bathroom. 
Um, and that's what it was. Uh, and I used to, we used to show people round when they came. And used to say, this is the one bedroom, which is the same, <laughs> it's as big as our flat is now. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, we were, we were very, it was very, very helpful to have that kind of space and to have a proper study. And in the end, eventually, after we'd been there a little while, um, they, there was a huge airing cupboard full of sheets and things. And they, <laughs> they were able to make it into a, a reasonable size ensuite bathroom. So that was all right. So we didn't have to go outside the back door to um, to go to the bathroom. Uh, but uh, it was we had a lot of parties there, which, by the way, we paid for. Um, <laughs> but we did have a lot of very good parties, and and um, you know tried to use them to to assist other people. I mean, it must have been. Kind of surreal because on the one hand you've got this whacking great grace and favour thing near Admiralty Arts. On the other hand, you're a passionate camper vanner. Yep. Uh, a caravanner, sorry. So you're sort of a, a great lover of being in a very small space, and then you're given this absolutely massive space. Uh, out of the two, which do you prefer? <laughs> I can manage either. <laughs> Somebody, uh, uh, it was a Tory um, MP's wife who said to me, uh, uh, not long after I'd ceased to be Foreign Secretary, did you like Chevening? And I said, yes, anybody would. I mean, Chevening's lovely. And she said, well, you know, um, how did you feel about it? I said, look, I liked Chevening very much. And we tried to go there about once a month. But I didn't inhale. <laughs> <laughs> So, what, what got you into caravanning? My sister. Um, my middle sister had three, little three rumbustious little boys. The only way they could really afford to go on holiday was camping. Um, and after they, uh, and at first they, they had those canvas holidays sort of tents, which were new then. Um, and it worked all right, it worked well. Um, and then they got themselves a VW camper van, and then they got themselves um, a caravan. And at that point, they said to me, um, when we go on holiday, you know, you can make up the VW into a, a bed. Um, would you like to come with us? Uh, because what we all found was that, I mean, that they were fantastic kids, but my God, they were a handful. Um, and one adult per child was just about manageable. <laughs> Three between two or, you know, whatever was, was less so. So they invited me to go on holiday with them. And then when I met and got to know Leah, um, they had a family background of camping. And so what happened was that at first, Leah and I went on holiday with my sister's family made us quite a large party um, and then one year uh, by this time I'd lost Lincoln um, and been working at Granada and um, I had a, a change of, of the programs I was working on uh, and that meant that we couldn't go on holiday when the, my sister's family did so we hired a caravan for ourselves uh, and we found that although we liked going with them, we liked going on our own even more. <laughs> um, so that's when we started caravanning. 
And when you see the sort of vehicles that you can get now, particularly if you're the leader oh. of the SNP, do you... Um, <laughs> Do you feel that, you know, the game has moved on? Do you feel a sense of kinship with Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Morrill when you see him? Well, I wouldn't say I've ever feel kinship with Nicola Sturgeon under any circumstances. But I do remember saying to um, one of my parliamentary colleagues who was sort of muttering about how, you know, we used to carry around when we were, the kids were little and, and I'd like to do it again, but my wife didn't. And I said, you tell your wife, it, you can't call it camping, it's caravanning. You've got a fridge, you've got running hot and cold water, you've got blown air central heating if you want it, you know. Um, it, it can be quite comfortable if you want it to be, but you have got complete freedom. And the thing that always struck me with kids when you're on holiday, you know, it, you know this worry about, oh, the hotel doesn't like you to do that, the hotel doesn't like you to do that, don't do so and so. so. You if they get all sandy, you stand them outside and you shake them gently and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but this, when you're Foreign Secretary, surely Special Branch must have said, we can't have the Foreign Secretary like, in, a, no. in a caravan. It's not so No, cool. you, you underestimate Special Branch. <laughs> um, Special Branch uh, view was, you're the Foreign Secretary, we adapt to you, not the other way around. Um, um, one of the first things I think uh, that kind of gradually crept out was that they said, theoretically, if anything happens, we look after her and nobody else. But if you think she's going anywhere without Leo, you can forget it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, when it came to the caravan holiday, um, they hired a camper van um, and followed us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it was very successful. Um, <laughs> And, uh, oh, and by the way, the, the first, uh, uh, the sun sat outside. It, this was in the middle of the Lebanon conflict. The sun sat outside our house for two weeks or more, I don't remember, um, waiting to get a photograph of us um, going on holiday. And were berated by one of my neighbours who came and rang the doorbell and said, I, I t do you realise there are those people sitting there? So I said, yeah, I, I told them. I said, she's got a perfect right to go on holiday like anyway. I thought, this is good. Anyway, um, so eventually, of course, I began to realise if we didn't go soon, because we'd got theoretical dates, but we hadn't got anything, you don't have to, well, then, I think it's more formal now, but then you didn't have to book quite so much. Uh, so um, uh, I thought, but if, if we don't go soon, we'll, we'll never go. Uh, so we set off and we had the sun following us then with a car and a motorbike and as it happens we lost them um, on the motorway north of Paris um, because uh, we were going to a, a little campsite um, you know not a big fancy one in rural France and so we came off the A1 and there was a parallel road and then you joined it again. And as it happened, they'd just changed over at that point. I think, I can't remember which one, whether it was a motorbike or a car that was following us. But whatever it was, didn't come off in time. Uh, and indeed, I think our special branch colleagues were cursing because it was kind of the last thing I said to them, no, no, we go off here. And we went down the side road. And then, of course, we never went back on again because we were going to somewhere halfway down that road. So we And they assumed we were going to Paris. So we lost them completely. So after that, that was all right. Um, and, and they loved it. 
They absolutely <laughs> loved it. Um, one of them always had to stay with the camper van, but the others went into a little local hotel or something. Um, and then we got to where we were going, and there was a, a, quite an, a, a, a nice episode where, um, because of the Lebanon conflict, we had secure comms equipment with us. Of course, the bloody thing didn't work, did it? They so often don't. <laughs> Uh, so they sent somebody out who was a, you know, a practitioner in the arts uh, from the UK, um, and uh, so we were on our pitch where we were staying, um, and they had to move around a bit to get to somewhere where they could access the satellite to set up the secure comms. People on campsites are very friendly, <laughs> so there was this very nice German on a nearby campsite, and he saw them fiddling with a satellite dish trying to set up. So, and there's a, there are, you know, there's equipment that you can get the signal and so on. So he sent his son over to help them. <laughs> this nice little boy went and, get, and uh, said, you know, you don't have to worry, you know, you just take this. You can. And they had uh, sort of not very, they were very grateful, but, didn't use it, and in the <laughs> end, you know, the, the, and this nice German moment, I was sort of scratching his head. You know, these bloody people, you try and help people. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, what he didn't realise is they weren't trying to link onto the same satellite he was trying to link onto. They were trying to link onto a satellite so that I could talk and secure comms with Tony in the Caribbean. Um, <laughs> when I was in France. Um, so there was... I'm afraid we caused a degree of, of um, friction in, in international relations, but I, I think he got over it. Anyway, as I say, the lads all loved it, and indeed they all signed up that they all wanted to come the following year. <laughs> um, but by then I wasn't in the Foreign Office. But would they ever say, oh, Foreign Secretary, it's a great idea to go camping in rural France, but actually the Prime Minister's at a Sandals Resort in Jamaica for two weeks, all inclusive. Maybe we just go there, and, and that's just better for like national security and stuff. No, they never said that. <laughs> <laughs> but just thinking about Tony Blair then, because obviously he's, uh, you know, Prime Minister, he puts you in the cabinet, he makes you Foreign Secretary, as you say, yeah. late on in his um, uh, leadership, in, in his tenure as Prime Minister. You stand against him in 1994. Mm -hmm. How difficult, because what people say about that election is, um, obviously John Smith dies, and then there's this kind of Tony versus Gordon thing. If you're not Tony or Gordon, and you want to be leader of the Labour Party, how difficult is that to kind of get over that psychodrama and say, actually, I'm Margaret Beckett, I've got my own manifesto, I've got a vision for the party and for the country. Was it, was it basically as impossible as I would imagine it is to get any airtime in the middle of all that? It was pretty difficult, yeah. Uh, and it was quite a contrast. I, I, you just reminded me of something which I had completely forgotten until the other day, because something came up about when I ran to be deputy leader uh, uh, for, to John. And my campaign manager was Gordon, and my deputy campaign manager was Tony. <laughs> um, so then when we came to the, um, the leadership later on, it was a little bit different. Um, but um, no, I mean, it was one of those, it was a weird thing. We, we, we were having a tremendous reception from the public. Um, I mean, just everywhere we went. I remember we went to a, 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 a meeting, to a conference in Scotland, 
and um, I, I can't remember where we were. We were it might have been in Glasgow Airport, I don't know. Wherever it was, you came out and there was a stairway down to, you know, where the concourse where everybody gathers and so on. And we got to the top of these stairs. The whole place burst into applause. We were getting a fantastic reception from the public wherever we went. And I remember saying to Leah, you've got to remember, these people are not members of the Labour Party. <laughs> they haven't got a vote. It's very nice that they're um, friendly. And, and also, I felt it was, it was a tribute to, to the Labour Party and, you know, um, to, to how well we were, we were coping with, uh, with what was a very difficult situation. Um, but, I mean, I was never in any doubt uh, I mean, the whole shadow cabinet were going to vote for Tony and support him, and most of the parliamentary Labour Party. There was never any... I mean, there was a point at which Leo said to me, you do realise, don't you, that, that if we were to win... I mean, there's going to be no summer holiday. And I said, you don't want to worry about that. We're not, you know, that's, that's a chance in hell that we're going to win. But I know, he said. But I just thought I ought to say it, <laughs> um, just so you know, you didn't get into the way of thinking that if we won, we could have a summer holiday. Um, meanwhile, Tony's team are saying, God, I'll be glad when this is over and we can all go on holiday. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was a suggestion, and I can't remember which side, but that given the circumstance of the election, that some people were organising too quickly. I mean, was there a sense that actually... Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm issued an edict that until John was buried, there was to be no campaigning, uh, which I seem to me to be the least you could do. And to be fair, I don't think many people had an appetite for public campaigning, but there wasn't any doubt it was all going on behind the scenes, vociferously, but at least we maintained it, a, a dignified profile in public. Uh, uh, just because we haven't mentioned Neil Kinnock at all, because you and he had an interesting relationship, and you both oh. went on a journey from the left of the Labour Party, still staying on the left, but perhaps less of the left. And, um, I mean, people might be surprised that you were a supporter of Tony Benn's deputy leadership campaign in the early 80s. And, and not just a supporter, but you called Neil Kinnock a Judas for not supporting him. I'm glad you mentioned that, because that was not me. Um, oh, that's right. You didn't call him Judas. Someone else did. That's right. Uh, I, I, I don't know of my own knowledge who did, but I have been told by somebody who claims to be in the audience um, who did, and uh, it, it, was, it was a man who, if, if it's true, it was a man who has since made a, a, a great deal of running down everybody in the Labour Party, so it would be less surprising if he'd said it. I certainly... Ken Livingston? George Galloway. I was <laughs> <laughs> in the right ballpark. To be, to be fair to George, I don't know if it's true. I, I didn't hear it, actually, and I, I certainly wasn't... I, didn't, I don't know whether he said it or not. But if anybody wants to know what I actually said, I don't know if he's still got it, but as luck would have it, Ivor Gaber um, had been recording the meeting, and, of course, when I came... Because there were always too many speakers at Tribune meetings. Um, when I started to speak, he turned off his recording equipment and then he heard what I was saying, so he turned it on again. <laughs> so there is a complete recording, sort of there was, of what I actually said. Um, but what happened was uh, Dick, I can't remember his name. Tavern? No, 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 uh, uh, editor of Tribune, 
um, he, he apparently, I, I know this now, I did not know this then, there was this huge platform of people, including Neil, and he had said to everybody, we're not going to talk about the deputy leadership. You know, nobody's going to say anything about it. But he didn't bother to say it to me. Because, you know, I was just, I was on the platform because I'd been the MP for Lincoln and beaten Dick Tavern and then I'd lost. And so I was on the platform as a sort of gesture of sympathy. And I hadn't, one of the things that used to drive Leo crazy was that I would often go onto a platform with no idea what I was going to say. Um, I do that in my gigs sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so, uh, so I, and you know, I'd have paper and a pen, and I'd, uh, and there were so many speakers, I had plenty of time to work. And I thought, what am I going to, what the hell am I going to say? And I thought, well, what I could do is just say, look, you know, um, it's always been the norm. If there was a left candidate for something, you voted for the left candidate. And I know that a lot of people who written that on the left didn't vote for the left candidate this time. Now, I've been out of Parliament for a while, and, and you know, before I became an MP, I'd worked with Tony, uh, Tony and Judith Hart. They were on the NEC. I was a member of the party staff. We worked on all the stuff about industrial policy, the National Enterprise Board, all of that. Um, and, and so I knew Tony quite well. Uh, and, and suddenly, the, people seemed to regard him as a great bogey figure. And I, I couldn't understand it. I genuinely couldn't understand it. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just say, you know, I'm sorry with it. And so I said, you know, look, everybody, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I know Tony, I know, I know Dennis. Um, and, you know, I thought that the left ought to have supported Tony. And I, I, I to be honest, eyes outside Parliament, I don't understand why we didn't. And the place went mad. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, um, uh, a, a, a young friend of somebody who'd been my PA said to me, that's what everybody was thinking. Somebody needed to say it. And you were the person who said it. And you said it well, which was nice of him. Um, but I mean, I never, I never set out to cause Neil a prime. I mean, I was very fond of Neil. We, we'd been great friends. Uh, but I genuinely didn't understand what the problem was with Tony. Did you come to understand? Uh, I think Tony changed. Especially, uh, he, he had that very serious illness. So, uh, and no, I didn't understand then, and I didn't understand for a long time. But I think towards the end, um, Tony got more and more so, no, I couldn't go along with that. No, I don't go along with that. Uh, which I was sad about, because he was, he was a, a lovely person. He really was. And um, one of the things I never talked about then, and I think I can do it now, because I think the others are all dead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. <laughs> but um, Tony tried very hard, and Tony and Caroline um, both... Um, asked me to go and see them at PartyCon, tried very hard to get me to be the head of his team of special advisors when we went into government. Um, and by then, I had begun to think that perhaps I would like to be a member of parliament and to think that it didn't, hurt, didn't help your campaign to hitch your wagon to anybody's star. And I was thinking, 
I was in the research department, I was thinking that my, my own boss might well become a member of parliament and then I would perhaps try to be, take his place as head of department and then maybe in the fullness of time there might be an opportunity for me to think about being a member of parliament. So I, I, I was very honoured to be asked but I regretfully said no to Tony. But I never told, I never talked to people about it because I didn't think that the people who did take those jobs should know that they weren't their first choice. Yes. I thought that would be unfair. Well, that's very dignified. Um, we've got time for a couple of quick audience questions. If you could indicate clearly, and um, one sentence questions, please. And uh, Sorry, one sentence I'm talking answer, too much. I'll try and take a couple. Um, but if you could indicate clearly, put your hand in the air. And yes, the second row there. Um, as an MP, how do you deal with the fact that on a Monday you might be forced into send troops to a war, and on a Friday you might be dealing with, say, Mrs. Smith's potholes and planning permission issues? And how do you keep you calm in your surgery Yes, as an MP, how do you balance great matters of state and, and geopolitics with local stuff? It, it's, it's, it's the job. It's par for the course. Um, I mean, the thing I always say to, to school kids or whatever is being a member of parliament is neither a job nor a profession. It is literally a way of life. Um, and I didn't know that when I first became a member of parliament. Um, but it's one of the things that you find out uh, I remember quite early on running into a colleague on the train and, and saying to him, um, you know, I, I'm just sitting here and I was quite a new MP and these kids are behaving really, really badly. And I'm, you know, my natural inclination is to glare at them because my mother was a teacher and my mother could fix a child with her eye mm -hmm. and that child would stop doing whatever it was doing. Um, and, and I've realised, and then I suddenly thought, Hang on, they might be constituents. <laughs> um, so I'd better not do that. And he said, my dear girl, did you not know? You're never not on parade from now on. Because you never know anybody around you could be your constituent. And that was a very important lesson. But I've never had a problem with the, the thing about um, Mrs. Bloggs or whatever it is. When I wasn't a member of parliament, after I lost in 79, and then I came back in 83, I didn't miss the House of Commons, because I knew the House of Commons wouldn't miss me. There's nothing so ex as an ex-MP. And it, it can be really embarrassing. You, you, you're, you're always in a perpetual race against time. And you see somebody and you think, oh, so-and-so, oh, how awful. I, I, I must stop and say, I ought to make a fuss of them, but I haven't got time on my way and I'm late for this meeting already. So I didn't miss that. But I really missed not having the link with constituents and people coming to you for help with their problems. And you can't always help them, but you can always try. And that's always been, in, a, in one sense, the most important thing for me um, as, as, a, as, a, as a part of... It may partly be, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, it may partly be because when I was little, we moved every nine years. And so I'd never really stayed in one place for very long. And I've been in Derby, for example, for 40 years. That's the longest I've ever lived anywhere in my life. And that's why it's home. 
and the, and the Derby people, and I don't come from Derby, so I feel free to say it, the Derby people are wonderful, lovely people. Um, so I feel absolutely blessed to have been a member of Parliament there. Uh, and, and it's that link that is the... And, and I think you'll find most... 99% perhaps of members of Parliament genuinely really value the link with their constituents. And it's one of the strengths of our system, in my view. Even the current cabinet. <laughs> we don't have time for supplementary questions. I need to take another question from one more person. Well, it's not even possible. Some of them. Some of them are so idle and incompetent, they probably don't care about anything. <laughs> it's the woman down the front. Yeah, um, so I teach politics through to A-level. Um, so just seen the end of uh, my group for this year. They've been so passionate about it. It's been fairly interesting teaching it this year. Um, I bet. One, <laughs> yeah. one question they wanted to ask, um, so this is from them, is um, of all the people that you have worked with, and it could be from any party, which three people would you work willingly, happily, uh, collegially in a cabinet with? Of all the people you worked with in politics, which oh, wow. three would you work in a cabinet with? I mean, to be honest, it's it's not as difficult as that. Um, I've I've always, what I've always found in politics is people will say to you, um, oh, "Oh, you don't you don't want that? Oh, you don't want to, want to work with that person? Oh, God, you've been given so and so as a member of state. He's terrible." I I have nearly always found that there's the odd person who hasn't been easy to work with, but um, and who's that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that wouldn't be fair. Um, but uh, basically, I've found that, that most people I can get on with, um, and I want to get on with. And, you know, there are people who are wonderful to work with and very supportive, and John was one of them. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I hope I've got... I've got very good relationships with all the colleagues. I mean, um, we had a, a, a thing in my constituency last week, because as it happens, it was the 40th anniversary of my being elected in Derby last Friday. And um, Tony and Gordon both did very nice videos, which was much appreciated. Um, and I think the only people, and I'm not going to name them, <laughs> the, the only people I would now find a bit difficult more now than I did then, because I'm not as naive now as I was then. There are, I'm afraid, people who build their relationship with the media by leaking and attacking and undermining their colleagues. Um, when I was in the cabinet, I never, I always assumed that my colleagues didn't do it. And as time went by, I found Perhaps there were one or two who did, um, and that I very much did. I, I have, I think I can honestly say, I have never linked stuff to the news media. I've never attacked. I'm I'm down on 99% journalists uh, list as absolutely boring. Doesn't leak, <laughs> doesn't snipe, doesn't attack her colleagues. Not worth talking to. That suits me fine. <laughs> Excellent answer. So, Margaret, this has been 
Absolutely wonderful, thank you. You're not standing at the next election. I am not. Um, but it may be a landmark one. Just yes mm. or no. Is Keir Starmer going to be the next Prime Minister? Please, God. <laughs> Otherwise, we're all stuffed. Not a yes, but there we go. Um, so, um, ladies no, and gentlemen... No, it, it is a yes, actually. I mean, it's just, it's just that it's innate in me because I've always been in a market... Well, yes, when I first won in Derby, I, I won in Lincoln by 900 and then I lost. I won in Derby by 423 and it took me... I'd, I had fought six elections before I got a majority of about 1,500. So I take no election for granted, yeah. ever. Yeah. But if there's any justice in this world, Keir will be the Prime Minister. Well, we shall wait and see. Uh, folks, thank you so much for being such a wonderful audience this evening. Please, a round of applause for everyone who works at the Duchess Theatre and at Avalon for making tonight possible. But ladies and gentlemen, please, a very special thank you for one of the most gifted politicians this country has ever produced. And a phenom Margaret, this has been such a special night. And we're going to miss you as a, as a member of the House of Commons, but we will all be following you very, very closely. You've made a phenomenal contribution to, to Labour politics and to our national life. Thank you. You're very, very rare, talented. <laughs> I mean, the, there are not many people in politics that I've encountered like you, Margaret. You're a very, very special person. Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Becker. Well, there you go, Margaret Beckett. And, and, and what an incredible person. Because the one thing that really strikes you is just how dignified Margaret is, how thoughtful and fair she is, but just how basically unchanged by status she is. And in a way, how unmoved and unimpressed she is, in, in the right way, not in a disrespectful way, but just she's someone who treats everyone the same who is really philosophical about power and having had it and status and things like that and what it's there for. I mean, what a contrast with you know the discussions that have been going on the week that this was recorded. That episode was recorded the night um, that Parliament was voting on the Standards and Privileges report into the conduct of Boris Johnson. Do you think Margaret Beckett it, it isn't just a world away from someone like Boris Johnson? She's like a, a galaxy away. Her attitude towards politics and public office is completely different. And just how refreshing that is to sit in the company of someone. I actually find that way more exciting than sitting opposite or, or you know, the, the, the era of the kind of charismatic disruptor politician that actually doesn't get anything done. It, it, it's far more inspirational and interesting to sit with someone like Margaret Beckett and learn from her about what politics is about and how she achieved things and her approach to life and her reflections on the last few years. And when you think about her length of service as an MP and her time in cabinet. I mean, th there are very few people that will ever live that will have served their country for such a long time at such a high level um, and, and remain just so modest about it. Um, really, and it is, you know, even in the modern era, she feels very different. She always had a, a, a just such a, a um, an impressive persona and character, just a, a, an amazing person, and that... Obviously, I never want them to end, but there are some guests. It really reminded me of the Michael Heseltine episode and the Neil Kinnock episode. And to some extent, the Tessa Jowell episode, where you feel like you've been slightly transported somewhere else for a while. Um, at the end of the interview, you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I was I was there in the corridors of Parliament with Tony Benn or with John Smith. It was so vivid the way that she brought it to life. 
Um, so my word, what an experience that was for all of us. Thank you to everyone who came. It was a very special atmosphere in the room. And of course, thank you to Margaret for just being such a special guest. And my next guest at the political party is Joe Lysett on the 3rd of July, phenomenal comedian. Uh, you'll know him as well for a lot of his activist work um, and, and the brilliant way that he uses his platform to highlight issues that he cares about. And then on the 17th of July, Mari Black, the deputy leader of the SNP in Westminster, what a time to be talking to a senior uh, SNP politician after everything that's gone on. And not just that, someone who, of course, set the world alight in 2015 with that maiden speech. Then I'm at the Edinburgh Festival where guests, um, I'm doing some political parties up there, include Kate Forbes and Angela Rayner. And then when we're back at the Duchess Theatre on the 18th of September, with Dan Jarvis on the 2nd of October, Jason Williamson, and Spitting Image the Musical is running until the end of August. All the links you need are in the blurb. I'll see you next time. ta -ra.